I've let Louis off the lead, and I'm going to read again from Rebecca Solnit's book, Wanderlust. So it's a return to a history of walking. I'm walking in an equestrian center called Hides in Cork. My daughter is off riding a pony at the moment, and the dog is likely to be chasing rabbit and has previously chased a fox here. I don't expect to meet anybody on this walk, which will be along a trail, or along a path, I suppose, and across a field full of green grass now, as opposed to golden-coloured grass, which it was a little while ago when we were in the heat of the drought. Now, Rebecca Solnit has written many, many books, none of which I've read, and this book, Wanderlust, is all fresh to me. So we're in chapter four, which is called The Uphill Road to Grace. And previously, it was all about pilgrimages, and I think this will be all about pilgrimages too. So let's see what Rebecca has to say. We started easily enough on a flat wooden bridge across a stream that watered the banks around it into rare lushness. Then up... Uh Uh-oh. Wait a minute, I'm not walking through that. Down in front of me is a load of water. And uh, I'm not walking along a muddy path. So I'm going to put the book down I'm going to open this uh, gate to this field. And I'm going to walk through the field. You see, we had some rain recently. I'm opening a knot in an orange-coloured piece of cord. Now I'll have to, I'll have to put the knot back on after I've opened this big gate. <coughs> There's an electric wire, which I don't think is is, is is electrified, but I could be wrong. That's immediately on my left-hand side. So tie the knot again there, my friend Louis, and then we can walk to wherever... Rebecca Solid wants to take us. Okay, that's done. Lifting the book gingerly. I think I'm going to start all over again. We started easily enough on a flat wooden bridge across a stream that watered the banks around it into rare lushness. Then up through Greg and Maclean's dogleg cornfield bordered by oaks. From there we went over an irrigation ditch and through the fence that divided their land from the Nambe Reservation. The first of many fences we would crawl under, scramble over, or unlatch a wire-fastened gate and pass through. I had no idea what was coming when I opened the gate. 
On the Nambe Reservation, we passed Nambe Falls, which we could hear roaring in its gorge, but not quite see. I liked its invisibly, its invisibility, as a reminder that we were not on a scenic walk or the territory of people imbued with the mainstream European tradition of such walks. We could hear it as we approached, and by going to a promontory point and craning, could see part of it. But the only possible clear view of our route would be the quick one during the plummet from the cliff into the deep channel below. So we glimpsed the foaming white edges and lower streamed and lower stream bed and went on. We all kept pace with each other for the first half of the expedition. And though the way utterly failed to resemble the route that had looked so coherent when Greg had shown it to us on the topographical maps, the roads and irrigation ditches and landmarks made it clear enough to him. Wherever you go, there you are, he said, whenever someone asked him if we were lost yet. We had a cheerful morning of it. Sue said that she had expected us to proceed in sombre silence. But everyone told stories and made observations. We ate a first snack under a roadside cottonwood tree, past the San Juan Reservoir on the Nambe Reservation, which adjoins Greg's land and then walked through the outskirts of the reservation town with its horses, root trees, sweat lodge, buffalo pasture and many scattered houses. Right, we have to get through this, uh, get through this gate. Now where do we go? We gotta go through another gate. I'd much prefer walking on the path here, which is all earth. But they, the grass is long in the field. It's grown again. Hmm. You know what, I'm gonna climb over it. rather than open another knot as long as I don't fall off it. Where were we? For the whole length of that road into Nambe, Meridel told us about her first New Age experience in Santa Fe, having her aura balanced in the 1970s, and we variously inquired and wisecracked about the notion Sue taught us the acronym of AFGO. Quote, another fucking growth opportunity. AFGO. <laughs> like that. For the plethora of spiritual opportunities and opportunists in Santa Fe. Three in our party had had Christian upbringings, and I had come out partly to help Miradel celebrate her 50th birthday with a revisionist Passover dinner the day after our walk. 
She was raised as a non-religious Jew and I was raised as, as nothing in particular by a lapsed Catholic and a non-practicing Jew. Since the Last Supper was a Passover seder, even Good Friday and Easter were overlaid on the Jewish holiday celebrating the flight from Egypt and this pilgrimage was built on top of all those layers of meeting, suffering, moving, dying. We began to drift apart north of the Nambe settlement when we reached the rough sandstone expanse of the Badlands with wind-carved pillars of red stone studding a hot, airless expanse of sand and gravel and ruddy ditch stretching to the red cliffs in the distance. The two other women began to trail and the two men I didn't know went on ahead. We all met up at the windmill which marked a turn in terrain and in direction and lounged around the shade of its waterless tank. Afterwards, Greg and Sue decided to go around a hill the rest of us were going to go straight over because she was wearing out. The badlands had given way to more of the intricate terrain of hillocks so hard to navigate in. And rather than going over the single hill I had expected, we found ourselves surmounting and descending innumerable tree-studded red soil rises. We shouted, but we couldn't find them, so we kept walking. One of the other men had gone on far ahead. The other was walking faster than Meridel could. She was an athletic woman, but she was small and had pulled something in her knee, and her steps had grown short. This drifting apart was dispiriting. When I think about what we were doing, it seems as if we ought to have, as if it ought to have been an experience of paradise attained. Dear friends and amiable young, amiable new acquaintances moving across a varied landscape towards a remarkable goal under an azure sky. But alas, we had various bodies and various styles. I had been frustrated for the last few hours by the pace. Maybe I'll just walk around this field rather than out of it. Someone would stop to pull out binoculars or to confer, and everyone would come to a halt that would grow protracted. Standing or wandering slowly made my feet hurt. It's why museums and mouths are more painful than mountains. And if the devil is in the details, mine was in the heavy duty boots I thought I had broken in, but which had begun to break my feet in over again. So I oscillated between the man ahead and the woman behind until we finally reached the open grassland. Three of us arrived at the road on the far side of the grassland together. A steady stream of walkers and cars was going by, the former all uphill, the latter in both directions, and Mirabel and I joined in. We were now part of the much larger community, spread out for dozens of miles along the highway that is the main pilgrimage route. 
The trail of empty water bottles and orange peels broke evidence to the volunteers further down the road. People who came every year and set up tables bearing slices of orange, water, soft drinks, cookies and occasionally Easter candy that everyone was welcome to taste, to take. This was one of the most moving parts of the pilgrimage to me. These people who were out not to earn their own salvation but to support others doing so. Empty water bottles, the trail of empty water bottles disgusts me. I can see a landscape, perhaps I'm, I'm, inve- I'm imagining a landscape strewn with single-use plastic bottles. I'm surprised she didn't at least uh, put an aside in about it. On Good Friday of the year before, I had been struck by how little preparation most of the pilgrimage, pilgrims seemed to have made for a long walk. Their everyday clothes had been something of a rebuke to me that this was not a hike. And many stout people who looked as if they had never walked much otherwise persevered. Come on, Louis, this way. This year, the day was much warmer and everything seemed different. With our aching feet and our packs, we we looked more serious, more dogged than the jaunty young pilgrims in their colourful shorts and jeans and t-shirts. Though Mirabel's husband, Jerry, told us when he met us in Chimayo that he had seen a woman from a very small town wearing a fancy white dress, the kind of dress you would get married in or buried in. And two days earlier and 30 miles west, I'd seen two men in fatigues walking eastward, one of them carrying a large cross. Both times I joined this pilgrimage, I had the strange, strange sense that I was walking alongside people in another world, the world of believers, people for whom the sanctuario up ahead contained a definite power in a cosmos organized around the Trinity, the Mother of God, the saints, and the geography of churches, shrines, altars, and sacraments. But I had suffered like a pilgrim. My feet were killing me. Now... I'm faced with an electric fence. (laughs) Which is electrified. I think I'm going to crawl. What am I going to do? I'm going to crawl underneath it. I'm better to walk up the side of the fence. Yes. (laughs) I'm postponing the need to crawl under the fence. No, here's a place where the the ground seems to drop a fraction. Yeah, on my knees, like a pilgrim. Right, we've done it, Louis. Pilgrimages are not athletic events. 
not only because they often punish the body, but because they are so often gone on by those who are seeking the restoration of their own or a loved one's health. They are the least equipped rather than the most. Greg told me when I called him up to ask if I could join in that when he had leukemia, he made a deal with the gods. Framed in the same easygoing humour he brought to other subjects, the deal's terms were flexible. That if he lived, he would try to go on the pilgrimage when he could. This was his third year of walking it, and it got easier every year. Four years before, when he was deadly ill, Jerry and Miradel walked for him and brought him back some dirt dust, dirt for the sanctuario. The Easter week in which we were walking to Chimayo, a similar pilgrimage from Paris to Chartres would be taking place again, and far larger crowds of Christians would be gathering in Rome and Jerusalem. In the last half century or so, a wide variety of secular and non-traditional pilgrimages have evolved that extend the notion of the pilgrimage into political and economic spheres. Not long before I had set out, a march in San Francisco commemorated the farm workers, the farm worker organizer Cesar Chavez's birthday with a crosstown walk for justice. And in Memphis, Tennessee, silver, civil rights activists commemorated the 13th anniversary of Martin Luther King's assassination there with another march. In the southwest in April, I could have instead joined the Franciscan-led Nevada Desert Experience on their annual peace walk from Las Vegas to the Nevada Test Site, akin to another pilgrimage route from Chimayo to Los Alamos, birthplace of the atomic bomb, 30 miles west. Then there was the Muscular Dystrophy Association's annual walkathon. On the first week of April and the March of Dimes Walk America, the last weekend of the month, I'd come across a flyer in Gallup, New Mexico, for Native Americans for Community Action, Inc., 15th of 15th annual Sacred Mountain 10-kilometer prayer run and 2-kilometer fun run walk to be held in Flagstaff in June, which sounded like the spirit runs held by the five tribes fighting the proposed Ward Valley nuclear waste dump in southeastern California. And I knew that the annual breast cancer and AIDS walks were coming up in San Francisco's Golden Gate Park and other locations around the country. And no doubt somewhere somebody was walking across the continent for some other good cause. All these were outgrowths of the pilgrimage or adaptations of its terms. It's bright sun. It's warm. In front of me, a large oak tree. Ivy growing up it. I can 
I can pick a leaf. The leaves look colored. They've been colored. They've got a white, some kind of a white substance on them. It disappears if you rub them. An oak tree with ivy climbing to the sky. Imagine all those revisionist versions of pilgrimage. Oh, here comes a man on a... What, what do you call it? Come here, Louis. Come here. Come here. Come in here. Come in here. Lovely day, isn't it? Fantastic. It's lovely along here. It's lovely, isn't it? It's a little bit of heaven. Absolutely. Hasn't the grass started to grow very yeah, fast? Yeah, there's only a small amount of checking the fences there now. Yeah? Yeah, there's a nice bit of growth, yeah. It was, all, it was all kind of yellow, the... The, the, the amount of rain we had. I know. He's, uh, he's an English setter. He's very friendly and noises don't bother him. He... He isn't bothered by cars or by... Is he water? Uh, pardon? Is he, is he fan of the water? He won't go in the water. No? No, he won't swim in the water. Don't know why. He won't chase balls. He won't chase sticks. He, um... See, he was trained as a gun dog. Yeah. And I don't think he ever got into yeah. the idea of playing. He's, uh... I was cutting the grass last night with a, you know, with a fly mow, and uh, he could stand right next to it. Yeah. Wouldn't bother him. Most other dogs I've ever come across would uh, run away. Yeah, it's just lovely. My daughter's riding yeah, the pony. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not lovely to meet you like this. Oh, Is this a nice thing to drive? Yes. What's it called? A quad. A quad. Oh, they're quads, right? Yeah. Yeah. A Honda quad. Yeah. Lovely. I know. Life. Life enters the walk and beautifully interrupts the reading. Imagine all those revisionist theories of pilgrimage as a mighty river of walkers flowing from many sources. The first small trickle comes like March ice melt from a high glacier from a single woman almost half a century ago. On January the 1st, 1953, a woman known to the world only as Peace Pilgrim set out, vowing, quote, to remain a wanderer until mankind has learned the way of peace. She had found her vocation years before, when she walked all night through the woods and felt in her words a complete willingness without any reservations to give my life to God and to service. And she prepared for her vocation by walking 2,000 miles on the Appalachian Trail. Raised on a farm and active in peace politics before she abandoned her name and began her pilgrimage, she was a peculiarly American figure. 
plain-spoken and confident that the simplicity of life and thought that worked for her could work for everybody, for everyone. Her cheery accounts of her long years of walking the roads and talking to the people she met are unburdened by complexity, dogma or doubt and rife with exclamation marks. Oh, I could imagine myself doing that. Not for the rest of my life, but I could imagine myself walking slowly for a very long time and talking to people on the way and recording our conversations. Aimlessly walking. Walking for the sake of walking. Walking as a kind of gift to the universe. Or walking to receive a gift, more properly, from the universe. I think almost ideally walking with Louis. She started her pilgrimage by joining the Rose Bowl Parade in Pasadena. And something about setting out on her long odyssey from this corny festivity recalls Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz with her own farm girl can-do determination starting down the yellow brick road amid dancing munchkins. Peace Pilgrim kept walking for 28 years through all kinds of weather and every state and Canadian province as well as parts of Mexico. An older woman at the time she first set out She wore navy blue pants and shirt, tennis shoes and navy blue tunic, whose front was stenciled with the words, Peace Pilgrim, and whose back text changed over the years from walking coast to coast for peace to walking 10,000 miles for world disarmament to 25,000 miles on foot for peace. Something of her brisk, practical piety comes across in her explanation of the choice of dark blue. It doesn't show dirt, she wrote, and does represent peace and spirituality. Though she attributes her extraordinary health and stamina to her spirituality, it's hard not to wonder if it was the other way around. She continued her pilgrimage. Hang on a second. She attributes her extraordinary health and stamina to her spirituality. So supposing that said, although she attributes, or even I attribute, her spirituality to her extraordinary health and stamina. It's very good. She continued her pilgrimage in her simple outfit through snowstorms, rain, a harsh dust storm and heat, sleeping in cemeteries, in Grand Central Station, on floors, and on, an, and on an endless succession of the couches of new acquaintances. Nowadays, you could walk, travel, a bit like Christian Payne travelled from Land's End in Cornwall to John O'Groats.
in Scotland with no money staying in the houses well, I have to confess I'm eating blackberries this is the place to come for blackberries I must bring a bucket soon because blackberries only remain ripe for a short period of time even though there are lots of them that are still red so there'll be a stream over the next few weeks where was I? Though most of her writings are non-partisan, she took a strong stand on national and global politics, arguing against the Korean War, the Cold War and the arms race and war in general. The war in Korea was still going on when she set out from Pasadena, as was Senator Joe McCarthy's anti-communist intimidation. It was one of the bleakest periods in American history. with fear of nuclear war and communism, driving most Americans into the bunkers of conformity and repression. Even to argue for peace took heroic courage. To set out, as Peace Pilgrim did on the first day of 1953, with nothing more than her single outfit, whose pockets contained a comb, a folding toothbrush, a ballpoint pen, copies of her message and her current correspondence was astonishing hold on where did she have a notebook while the economy was booming and capitalism was becoming enshrined as a sacrament of freedom she had dropped out of the money economy she never carried or used money for the rest of her life she says of her lack of material possessions Think of how free I am. If I want to travel, I just stand up and walk away. There is nothing to tie me down. Though her models were largely Christian, her pilgrimage seems to have arisen from the same 1950s crisis of culture and spirituality that pushed John Cage, Gary Snyder, and many other artists and poets into investigations of Zen Buddhism and other non-Western traditions and sent Martin Luther King to India to study Gandhi's teachings on non-violence and Satyagraha, or soul force. Most people who diverge from the mainstream withdraw from its spaces but Peace Pilgrim had withdrawn from the former to enter the latter, where she would be most required to mediate the gap between her beliefs and national ideology. She was as much an evangelist as a pilgrim. I'm kind of saying, was she also a prophet? She had set out to walk 20, 25,000 miles for peace, and it took her nine years to do it. 
Afterwards, she continued walking for peace, but stopped counting the miles. As she put it, I walk until given shelter, fast until given food. I don't ask. It's given without asking. Aren't people good? I usually average 25 miles a day walking, depending upon how many people stop to talk to me along the way. I've gone up to 50 miles on one day to keep an appointment or because there was no shelter available. On very cold nights, I walk through the night to keep warm. Like the birds, I migrate north in the summer and south in the winter. Later, she became a widely recognized public speaker and occasionally accepted a ride to get her to her speaking engagements. She died, ironically, in a head-on car crash on July 1981. Wow. As I read that last sentence, I could feel a, a wish, a yearning within me for her to live forever. She seems such a such a full human being not given to splitting off the world into us and them not giving to splitting off peace from war but being all together I know I was I'm going to bring a bucket. They're huge, aren't they? And they're just beautiful. Yeah, they're just fabulous. They're just... But over there is the best place. Walking up along the side. Plenty of them. Loads. And up here, I'm going to try and get a bucket myself. And they're going to be there for... Well, if we get rain out tonight, they'll be full of maggots tomorrow. Got to think about blackberries. Right. All right. Yeah. No, I won't do it today because I don't have time, but I will they're do nice it. Oh, they're nice and a bit of porridge. Oh, they're good. What aren't they good in? They're and good they're in. Expensive. Yeah. I know, you'd get them. Well, here they are. Nature. He loves it. Can I get past down there without going in the water? Like a pilgrim, like a pilgrim. She had entered the luminal condition the Turners would later describe, leaving behind an ordinary identity with the goods and circumstances that bolter such identities to achieve the state of anonymous simplicity and clear purpose Tolsoy's princess Maria longed for. Her walking became a testament to the strength of her convictions and suggests several things. One is that the world was in such trouble that she herself had to drop her ordinary name and ordinary life to try to heal it. 
Another was that if she could break with the ordinary and go forth unprotected by money, by buildings, and by a place in the world, then perhaps profound change and profound trust was possible on a larger scale. A third is that of the carrier. Like Christ taking on the sins of his followers, or the Hebrew scapegoat driven out into the wilderness, burdened with the sins of the community, she had taken personal responsibility for the state of the world, and her life was testimony and expiation as well as example. But what makes her unorthodox is that she adapted a religious form, the pilgrimage, to carry political content. The pilgrimage traditionally dealt with disease and healing of self or loved ones, but she had taken on war, violence and hate as plagues ravishing the world. The political content that motivated her and the way in which she endeavoured to achieve change through influencing her fellow human beings rather than through divine intervention make her first, the first of a horde of modern political pilgrims. I'm not sure that I would call her the first of modern political pilgrims. What about the, the walks from South Wales to, to London in the 30s? What about those walks? There must be others too. Maybe I don't understand her. She foreshadowed this shift in the nature of the pilgrimage from appealing for divine intervention or holy miracle to demanding political change, making the audience no longer God or the gods, but the public. Perhaps the post-war era marked the end of belief that divine intervention alone was adequate. God had failed to prevent the Jewish Holocaust, and the Jews had seized their promised land through political and military means. African-Americans who had long used the metaphors of the promised land, stopped waiting too. I'm back where I tied the knot. Placing the book back on the wire. Opening what I once closed. Unscrambling but a short while ago, I knotted. <laughs> Almost as if I am on unknotting within me, around me, no, around me, what I once knotted. It's fun to play with such language. It's fun to speak as if there were some huge import to what I'm saying as if I was <laughs> guided by some spirit to speak in such hyperbolic terms knotting and unknotting unraveling the therapy of walking
At the height of the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King said he was going to Birmingham to lead demonstrations until Pharaoh lets God's people go. The collective walk brings together the iconography of the pilgrimage with that of the military march and the labour strike and demonstration. It is a show of strength as well as conviction, an appeal to temporal rather than spiritual powers, or perhaps in the case of the civil rights movement, both. Because, the involvement, because of the involvement of so many ministers, the practice of non-violence and the language of religious redemption, and occasionally martyrdom, the civil rights movement, was more saturated with the temperament and imagery of pilgrimage than most struggles. It was in large part about the rights of access of black people, and it was first fought on the contested sites, sitting down in and then boycotting buses, bringing children into schools, sitting in at lunch counters. But it found its momentum in events that united the protest or the strike with the pilgrimage. The march from Selma to Montgomery, to petition for voters' rights, the many marches in Birmingham and throughout the country, the culminating march on Washington. In fact, the first major event organised by the newly founded Southern Christian Leadership Conference, SCLC, was the prayer pilgrimage at the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. on May the 17th, 1957. The third anniversary of the Supreme Court ruling in favour of desegregating schools. It was so called to make it sound less threatening. A pilgrimage makes an appeal while a march makes a demand. King was profoundly influenced by the writings and actions of Mahatma Gandhi, and he adapted from Gandhi both the general principle of non-violence and the specifics of marches and boycotts that had hastened India's liberation from British rule. Perhaps Gandhi was the founder of the political pilgrimage with his famous 200-mile-long salt march in 1930 in which he and many people living inland walked to the sea to make their own salt in violation of British laws and British taxes. Non-violence means that activists are asking their oppressors for change rather than forcing it. And it can be, extra, it can be an extraordinary tool for the less powerful to wring change out of the more powerful Six years after the founding of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, Martin Luther King decided that nonviolent resistance by itself was inadequate, and the violence the Southern segregationists inflicted on blacks should be made as public as possible. The audience would no longer be merely the oppressors, but the world. This was the strategy of the Birmingham struggle, perhaps the central episode of the civil rights movement, which began on Good Friday of 1963, with the first of many marches or processions. God, it makes me aware that I know so little of what happened between 1957 and 1963. 
I'm so unsure of dates as well. It is from these protests that the most famous images come of people being blasted by high-pressure fire hoses and savaged by police dogs. Images that provoked worldwide indignation. King and hundreds of others were arrested for marching in Birmingham. And after the supply of willing adults began to run out, high school children were recruited and their younger siblings volunteered. Ah, yes, nothing like it. They marched for freedom with bold jubilance. And on May the 2nd of the year, of that year, 900 of these children were arrested. Oh my God. To get out into the streets knowing they risked attack, injury, arrest and death took an extraordinary resolve and the religious ardour of Southern Baptists as well as the Christian iconography of martyrdom seems to have strengthened them. Here, Louis. Come here. I'll put you on lead now. We're back. We're back in the centre. Out of the fields. Walking back to the car. People might get nervous if they saw you off the lead. A month after the Birmingham campaign had begun, writes one of King's biographers, Reverend Charles Billups and other Birmingham ministers led more than 3,000 young people on a pair pilgrimage to Birmingham jail singing, I want Jesus to walk with me as they moved. A photograph of the 1965 Selma to Montgomery march has been on my refrigerator for months and it speaks of this inspired walking taken by Matt Heron it shows a steady stream of marchers three or four wide moving from right to left across the photograph he must have lain low to take it for it raises its subjects up high against a pale clouded sky they seem to know they are walking towards transformation and into history And their wide steps, upraised hands, the confidence of their posture, express the will with which they go to meet it. They have found in this walk a way to make their history rather than suffer it, to measure their strength and test their freedom. And their movement expresses the same sense of destiny and meaning that resonates in King's deep-voiced, indomitable oratory. God, this is magnificent appreciation. In you get, Louis. Hop. Good dog. Good dog. There's more to go. In nineteen seventy. The form of the pilgrimage was moved yet further from its origins when the first walkathon was held by the March of Dimes, 
Tony Chopper, who has been working on these walks since 1975 and is their unofficial historian, says it was risky at the time since walking the streets en masse was associated with more radical demonstrations. The first walkers were high school students in San Antonio, Texas and Columbus, Ohio. And this first walkathon was modelled after a fundraiser for a hospital in Canada. It rained on both walks, he says, and there was no money but great potential. People did actually come out and walk. Over the years, the route was trimmed from the initial 25 miles to 10 kilometers and participation mushroomed. The year, the year we walked to Chimayo from Greg's Land, nearly a million people were expected to join what the March of Dimes now calls Walk America. And they would raise about 74 million for infant and perinatal health care and supporting research. The walk was co-sponsored by Kmart and Kellogg's, among others. The walkathon structure, with corporations sponsoring the event in return for promotional opportunities, and walkers raising the money for the charity, has been adopted by hundreds of organisations, the great majority of them dealing with disease and healthcare. The summer before I, I had accidentally run into the seventh annual AIDS Walk San Francisco in Golden Gate Park, a huge throng of people in shorts and caps milled around the starting area that sunny day holding various free beverages, advertisements and product samples. The hundred-page booklet for the walk consisted almost entirely of advertisements for the dozens of corporate sponsors, clothing companies, brokerage houses, who also had tables set up around the lawn. God, it's a far cry from walking without money, individual walking. It was a strange atmosphere, a cross between a gym and a convention, crawling with logos and ads. Yet it must have been profound for some of its participants. The next day, the paper said 25,000 walkers had raised... 3.5 million for local AIDS organisations and described a walker who wore a T-shirt printed with photographs of his two sons who had died of AIDS and said, you never get over it. The walk is a way to cope with it. These fundraising walks have become the mainstream American version of the pilgrimage. In many ways, they have travelled far from its original nature, notably in the evolution from devoutly appealing for divine intervention to pragmatically asking friends and family for money. And yet, however banal these walks are, they retain much of the content of the pilgrimage, the subject of health and healing, the community of pilgrims, and the earning through suffering or at least exertion. Walking is crucial to these events, or at least it has been. Bikeathons have come into being, and the last indignity dealt to this highly mutated form of pilgrimage came with the virtual walk including the San Francisco Art Institute's non-walk 
in which people were asked to give money and were given a t-shirt but weren't obliged to show up and AIDS actions until it is over e-march which proposed that participants electronically sign their names to a letter on the internet as a substitute for marching or walking. Fortunately, walkathons are not the end of the story. Though mutant forms of the pilgrimage keep springing up, the older ones thrive from religious pilgrimages to long political walks. A month after 25,000 people walked 10 kilometres to raise money for AIDS organisations in San Francisco, gang counsellor Jim Hernandez and anti-violence organiser Heather Takeman finished a 500-mile walk from East Los Angeles to Richmond, California, carrying more than 150 photographs of young murder victims and meeting with teenagers along the way. In 1986, hundreds of people joined together to form the Great Peace March. They walked across the United States together to ask for disarmament in a mass pilgrimage that created its own culture and support structure and had a large impact in some of the small towns through which they trekked. The walk began as a sort of publicity event, but somewhere along the long way, the walking itself took over and the walkers became less concerned with media and message and more with what was happening within themselves. In 1992, two more cross-continental peace walks did much the same thing, and like the water walkers of the Great Peace March, they drew inspiration from Peace Pilgrim. Similar walks went on across the Soviet Union and Europe during the early 1990s, and in 1993, strawberry pickers and other United Farm Workers, UFW, supporters, reenacted the great 300-mile Delano to Sacramento march Cesar Chavez had organised in 1966 and called a pilgrimage. Even the most sophisticated yield to the pilgrim's impulse, and even without the superstructure of religion, the ordeal of walking makes sense. The filmmaker Werner Herzog writes, at the beginning of November 1974, a friend from Paris called and told me that Lotte is Eisner's Eisner, a film historian, was seriously ill and would probably die. I said that this must not be, not at this time. German cinema could not do without her now. We would not permit her death. I took a jacket, a compass and a duffel bag with the necessities. My boots were solid and new and I had confidence in them. I set off on the most direct route to Paris in full faith, believing that she would stay alive if I came on foot. Besides, I wanted to be alone with myself. He walked the several hundred miles from Munich to winter in winter weather, often wet, often smelly, often thirsty, and usually suffering from great pain in some part of his feet and legs. Herzog, as anyone who has seen his films knows, is full of deep passions and extreme behaviour, however obtuse, and in his journals of his long walk to Paris he took on the qualities of one of the obsessives in his films. He walked in all weather, though he occasionally accepted a lift, and he slept in barns and a display mobile home he broke into, as well as, as, well as in strangers' homes and inns. The sparse prose, 
describes walking, suffering, minor encounters and fragments of scenery. Elaborate fantasies that themselves sound like outlines for Herzog movies are woven into the description of his ordeal. On the fourth day, he writes, While I was taking a shit, a hare came by at arm's length without noticing me. Pale brandy on my left thigh, which hurt from my groin downwards with every step. Why is walking so full of woe? On the twenty-first day, he put his feet up in Eisner's room and she smiled at him. For one splendid fleecing moment, something mellow flowed through my deadly tired body and I said to her open the window from these last days onward I can fly we had arrived too this is the last part the last paragraph we had arrived too along the curving road into Chimayo Sal and I sat down and waited for Meridel on a sidewalk cars, policemen and children carrying Snow cones passed by in front of us. Behind us bloomed a few stunning fruit trees in a knobbly, in a knobby pasture. Afterwards, Sal went to stand in the long line in front of the sanctuario, and I went off to buy us some lemonade at a small mobile food stand around the corner near the Sancto Nino Chapel, where people used to offer up children's shoes because the Sancto Nino, a version of the Christ child, is said to have worn out his own running errands of mercy around the countryside at night. It was nice to be back on familiar ground. I knew what was inside the sanctuario and thought of the thousands of crosses woven into the cyclone fence behind the outer outdoor chapel below. Crosses made of grapevine and cottonwood twigs and larger sticks and then of the irrigation ditch that flowed just the other side of the fence, of the swift, shallow river that runs through the town, of the burrito stand that sold meatless alternatives for Lent, of the old adobe houses and the trailer homes that are beginning to look old, and of the many unwelcoming signs. Notice. Please don't leave your belongings unattended at any time. Not responsible for theft. Beware of dog. Chimaya was a desperately poor town, known for drugs, violence and crime, as well as for sanctity. Jerry West was waiting for his wife Miradel in front of that chapel, and I made my last foot journey back with the lemonade, bid Sal farewell and went off to my own culminating destination. About 10,000 pilgrims would come into town and stand in line to go into the chapel that day. And Jerry found Greg and Sal and Sue sitting in line to go in too. When we left after the moon had risen, there were still more figures walking along the narrow shoulder of the road in that night, shadowy groups that no longer looked festive, but dedicated and fragile in the dark. End of chapter 4. Didn't we say two o'clock? Yeah, we sure did. <laughs>